You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Well, we're continuing on with our study, The End from the Beginning. And we're going through each of the different segments of the book of Genesis because I do believe that these segments, when they are reversed, show us events that happened in the last days. And this goes along with what Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, the thing that has been is the thing that shall be, and that which shall be is the thing that hath been. And then Isaiah 46.10 says that God declares the end from the beginning. And so if we take the different segments that are found in the book of Genesis, especially in the first 20 to 21 chapters, and we reverse them, they show us the end times. What you have in Genesis 1 and 2 is a paradise, and what you have in the book of Revelation, chapters 21 22, is a paradise. And so as we march backward in Revelation and forward in Genesis, and we lay these things on top of each other, we see that they match. And they not only match with the book of Revelation, but they also match with history because the end time prophetic events are not all told in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation speaks to the last seven years of the end times, and there are a number of other things that happened before that. We read some of those things in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, in the book of Second uh, Peter chapter 3. We read about it also in uh, the book of Daniel. So there are a number of things. Jesus had some things to say about the end times. So uh, there are a number of different sources. Is there, and we're watching all of these things fulfilled. There is an order. Now, I'm not suggesting that we can predict an exact time or a date, but we can locate where we are by looking at these sequences. For instance, there is an invasion of Israel that will take place in the future, but it can only come when Israel is in great prosperity. That's told to us in the book of Ezekiel chapter 38. We see in Genesis chapter uh, 13 and chapter 14 that Abram was rich in three different areas, just like the nation of Israel is rich in three different areas today. And there will be an invading army that comes down out of the north that will attack on two fronts, They'll attack east of the Dead Sea and to the north of Israel. That's how they'll come. And Ezekiel chapter 38 tells us that. We see the evidence for that. And that's exactly how the attack took place in Genesis chapter 14. And the nation that was a part of both of these is the country of Iran or Persia. Uh, it's Elam in uh, Genesis, but uh, that is now today part of the nation of Iran. All right, so let's get into this teaching. In Genesis chapter 18, we have something different that God has done. It is a condescension. I'll explain that in just a minute. This is just after Genesis 17. I mean, this couldn't have been but maybe weeks after this extraordinary vision. Abraham had a glorious vision of the Lord. When Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Almighty God Walk before me and be blameless. Well, if God said that and he calls himself Almighty God, Abraham is looking at him in his glory. He's seeing not all of his glory, but he's seeing him in a glorious form. Here, it's totally different. Let me read Genesis 18, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, behold, three men were standing by him. Now, they weren't right on top of him. They were distance off. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. Now, this visit is an act of identification with humanity as opposed to God appearing in all of His glory. It's totally different than the previous chapter. The previous chapter, it's the Lord Almighty appearing to him. Now, here is God appearing as a man. Here's what Stephen said about how God does this. 
in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, in his sermon, he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. So Abraham's first call came, my guess is he was probably 50 years old. And the reason I say that is it seemed like every 25 years there was a major event in his life. And, uh, but we don't know that for sure. But we know it was before he went to the country of Haran, or the place called Haran, which would be northern Iraq today. And uh, so God appeared to him in all of his glory over in Mesopotamia. That's what got the ball rolling. And it took Abraham a little while to leave his father and his family. And he came when he was 75 into the land of Canaan. So, so that was some time after. But he saw God in his glory when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, in Genesis 18, he's not seeing God in his glory. He's seeing God very much like a man. Now, when God does this, this condescension, where he takes on the form of a man, and he does it all through the Old Testament, you see the pre-incarnate Christ coming as a man among the people of Israel. When the, the Lord does this, he does it to show an act of mercy. That's why he's coming. Listen to John 1.14, and the word become became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus was the Word in all of His glory, but in order to bless us, He became flesh and He came to live among us. Isaiah 53, 2, this is uh, uh, from 26 translations, talking about the coming Messiah. And this is what uh, Isaiah says about Him. He has no distinguished appearance, no majesty to draw our eyes, Nothing to make us want him. That doesn't mean Jesus was ugly. I do not believe he was ugly. I believe he was a very handsome man. What I do believe is that he did not have a halo. He did not appear in glory. There was nothing supernatural looking about him. Uh, and that's very clear from the scriptures. And so uh, that's what all the prophets have to say. That's the inference we get from the gospels is that in many ways he was a, a normal human being. All right, so the human element in God's appearance is so complete that Abraham gave him cool water to drink. Why? Because he needed it. And he gave him water to wash his feet and hot meal. Think about this. God's feet were dirty. God showed up in the flesh, and I believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ who showed up in a man's body outside the tent of Abraham. He was hungry. He was thirsty. And he needed his feet washed, and Abraham took care of all of these things. Now, Abraham said, My Lord, if I've now found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. And after that, you may pass by. And as much as you've come to your servant, they said, Do as you've said. So God received his hospitality. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said quickly make uh, to Sarah, he said, quickly make ready three measures of fine meal and knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a tender and good calf and gave it to a young man and he hastened to prepare it. So in verse two, he ran, he hurried in verse six, quickly he says to Sarah in verse six, uh, verse seven, he ran and he hastened. Okay, this is the first fast food in the Bible. All right, so he took butter and milk and the calf which he'd prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And that's very typical of that type of hospitality in that part of the world. Now, so God is visiting Abraham right here, and what is he coming to do? God is coming to encourage Abraham and Sarah. If there's a weak link in this faith battle, it's probably got to do with Sarah, because she had never been able to bear children. At least Abraham at one time had fathered a son with Ishmael. But God said to Abraham in verse 9 of Genesis 18, Where is Sarah your wife? He said, Here in the tent. He said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son. Meaning that uh, she didn't become pregnant and then immediately have the son within a week or two. There was a natural process that worked here. And I want to say this about the Lord. People say this all the time. God is a God of miracles. Yes, He is. He certainly is. But you know, He's also a God of seed time and harvest. 
God is not only the God of the, nat- of the supernatural, but He's also the God of the natural. The, the supernatural God created this natural world. When the children of Israel came out of the wilderness and went into the land of Canaan, the minute they crossed the Jordan River, all of the manna that came six days a week, it dried up because the food was there for them to take in the land. They're able to reap the crops. And so they no longer needed manna. So that was God's preference, that they lived by the natural laws of seed time and harvest. The miracle provision of manna was to get them by. Uh, You know, I'm grateful for people who teach about financial miracles and encourage your faith, but you know what? You, you don't want to live by financial miracles. You want to be the miracle for somebody else. People who have to have a miracle to pay their bills are people who don't have a whole lot of money. Now, there was a time when I had to have that kind of help, and God was good to me. And my wife, when we first started out, and we had several miraculous events to take care of our money. But we knew it wasn't God's best. We eventually landed a job where we got paid more, we made more money, we grew in our income over the years, and now we're the ones who make those miracles happen for other people, and boy, do we love to do it. So who lives at the higher level? The person who receives the financial miracle or the person who is making the financial miracle happen? You take it from this. Jesus said in the book of Acts, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So who has the greater blessing? The person who does the giving, not the one who does the receiving. Now, what I want you to see is that the natural process of life happened. Sarah had a nine-month pregnancy. All right, behold, and and that's a miracle that a 90-year woman would be able to receive uh, strength to go through that nine months of, of, of developing a baby. Sarah was listening in the tent door. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, 1811. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it. She said, I did not not laugh, for she was afraid. (laughs) You don't do this to God. But notice that God wasn't hard with him. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And uh, and everybody was laughing, because when the baby was born, it was a, a laughing matter. It was amazing. All right, so the first purpose of God's visit here is to stimulate the faith of Abraham and Sarah about her being the birth mother. Because after all, over all these different occasions, God had said to Abraham, you're going to be the biological dad. Four different occasions. God mentions Abraham's seed. And that happens 12 times in all of these different visits that happen. But only two times does God say anything specifically about Sarah. The first time was in Genesis 17, and now here he does it again in Genesis 18. This was the time of bearing, and so now uh, the time has come for her to have to receive that and, and begin to experience the fruit of that miracle. Now the second purpose of God's visit is revealed in chapter 18 and verse 17. And so I'm going to read, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So God says here, I have called Abraham, I've made him my partner, he is my man in the earth. And the Lord said in verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not... Then I will know. Now, this is another manifestation of that condescension. In other words, God taking on the limitations of a man. Now, that doesn't mean that God did not know what Sodom was doing. He did know. He already knew what was going to happen. Before the universe was ever created, 
whatever heavenly body, asteroid, meteor, whatever it was, that needed to come and do a burst over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the Kikar, the disk that existed north of the Dead Sea, God set that thing in motion. He didn't create it at the last minute. He didn't snap his fingers and send fire and brimstone. God, in his foreknowledge, already had assigned a date with destiny to that city, and he built into it the delays that came through Lot, not wanting to leave very quickly. And so it's fascinating to me when the, the angels are telling Lot, this is going to happen, you got to get out of here. He delays and delays, and, uh, but God factored that in because of his great foreknowledge. But here's what God's doing. He's showing this condescension because he is doing this to show us what an intercessor does. An intercessor takes on the burden of another. This is something that happened to me when I was a young Christian and did not know what it was. I would have a burden, and I sensed I needed to pray. And I would feel awful. I would feel terrible. I would feel a heaviness come over me. And I wondered, what in the world is going on? And I knew that something was not right. In my, and when I was young and didn't know any better, I thought the burden was for myself. I thought it was all about me. And I, I could go through my mind, what have I done wrong? How have I sinned against the Lord? What have I done? How have I failed? And I'm examining myself. And over time, I learned that that was the Holy Spirit taking the load from someone else and putting it on me. There were times I felt as though I was lost myself. But when I would pray, I would pray till the joy came. And what happened was I was taking the place of another. That's what a mediator does. That's what an intercessor does. And so what we see here is that God has done this condescension in order to become an intercessor, and he's bringing Abraham into intercession by doing this thing. Now, these two angels that step out and separate, we start with a group of three, but one of them is God. I've heard people say different commentaries will say this was Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not so. There's nothing in the text to suggest that this is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in fact, it's not even the Father. Because no man has seen God at any time. Nobody's seen the Father. We haven't seen the Father in His glory. Anytime there is an appearance of Yahweh on the earth, pre-Christ, it is the Word. It is Jesus, second person of the Trinity who's coming. That's who it is. He's called the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Revelation 19, you see who the leader of the Lord's armies are. It's Jesus. And so he is the one who has come all down through uh, the ages to Israel. He's the one who created the nation of Israel. The Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians, the rock that followed Israel, where they got water, that was Christ. That's what Paul says in the New Testament. And so he was the pre-incarnate Christ who came to them. And here he is again. He is dealing with Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, two is the number of legal witnesses. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Another place it says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So two is the number of a couple of witnesses. God never accepted the testimony of just one. He wanted two. So God never judged a nation or a group of people that he had also not first shown mercy to. And so Sodom had received mercy. Abraham saved the people of Sodom when they were carried off into captivity by the kings who came from the north and the east. And he went and rescued Lot, but he also saved the people of Sodom. And so God has saved them. Now he's going to judge them. And this is something you see throughout Scripture. God never judges a nation until he first shows that nation great mercy. You see the same thing happen with Egypt. Joseph saves the nation of Egypt, but later Egypt is judged. We see mercy shown to the nation of Babylon through Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but later Babylon is judged. We see the Medes and the Persians having mercy through Daniel. 
But then, and Esther, later, we see that nation judged. Rome, we see it given mercy when both Peter and Paul preached the gospel in Rome. Paul to the Caesar. And then later, Rome was judged. The same thing is true of Sodom. God never judges a nation until he first witnesses to its king. Doesn't have to be every king it's ever had, but he witnesses to one king for the record. So God made Abraham a spiritual mediator. Now, this period that we're in here reflects a period that I would say is around the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s in modern times. And uh, it comes uh, before uh, the uh, invasion from the north and the east. It comes sometime during the same period as the Holocaust, so in the same era. And that's what we saw in Genesis 15. But right in here, we are seeing Sodom again. And it is the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And I'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But Abraham is now beginning to intercede for the people of Sodom. And he is calling out to God to try to help. Shall I hide from Abraham that which I'm doing? When God told Abraham what he was doing, Abraham began to intercede. He had a concern. He stuck his neck out before by going to bat for Lot. He went and fought with those invading armies. Now he's going to go to bat for Lot again. And this is what he says in verse 23. Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? And then listen to this, and I love this. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this. He's not lecturing God. He's appealing to God's character in this, in this prayer. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? There are a lot of people in the church I'd like to say that to today who are teaching that the church of Jesus Christ is going to go through the tribulation. Is that what the judge of all the earth does who's righteous? Does he judge the righteous and the wicked together with one stroke? You know, having worked with children down through the years, there's one thing that I have seen that will demoralize a group of kids quicker than anything. And it happens when the teacher of a class punishes the whole class for what just one kid does. That doesn't go over, and it betrays the character of God and the character of true authority. And so the judge of all the earth doesn't do that either. Now... People who do not have God and don't know God don't realize that their faith often lies in the hands of a righteous neighbor, perhaps someone they don't even know, but someone else is being dealt with about their future. Wow. Now, what we see is that Abraham began to intercede, and he asked God to spare the city. Let's go to verse 26. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Because Abraham asked God to spare for 50. Then Abraham knows there aren't 50 righteous. And he said, Indeed now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it on myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, God said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy the city. So he goes from 45 to 40, 40 down to 30, 30 down to 20, and 20 down to 10. Six intercessions. That's one short of the seven, the full cycle. And But Abraham would have had to go to probably around four to, to be able to save them. Here's what I want you to see. Abraham didn't stop the judgment. And as an intercessor, I've seen this happen many, many times, where I've had a burden to pray and in some cases, in some cases, some of the time, I'm able to completely stop what it is that is about to come to someone. But more often than not, I don't get to stop it. I get to mitigate it. I had burdens for both of my sons before their car wrecks. And uh, Whit didn't actually have a collision. My son Gabriel did. But I knew it. I knew it in my heart. 
the night that it happened for each of them. I knew there was danger, and uh, I was waiting up for them, as I always did, to come home, and I had a burden to pray. I prayed, and I got a call from Tulsa police not long after, and they told me my son had been in an accident. I got in the car and drove to the expressway where this had happened, found that Whit was okay, found that his car was okay. He hadn't actually hit anybody, but he'd done 360s going down a wet, rain-soaked highway and could easily have been hurt badly. But I got him behind me. We drove out of there, and uh, needless to say, he didn't do that again. But the point of it is I didn't stop it completely, but I mitigated it. I took the teeth out of it. Gabriel had a wreck where he ran into a telephone pole, and that could have been serious. And But he wasn't paying attention as he turned into our neighborhood and missed the gate and hit a telephone pole. Airbags deployed to hit him and, and uh, uh, one of his friends. I had to go to the hospital on that one. They were okay. I didn't stop it completely, but I mitigated it. So that's what I want you to see. Very often, uh, you mitigate things when you intercede and pray. And that's what you see with Abraham. He mitigated the destruction of Sodom. Lot was saved and the righteous in his family, they were saved, but he couldn't save the whole of Sodom. Well, we'll pick up here in the next section. Don't miss that. I'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back. We're going to pick up where we left off in the visit of the Lord as he condescends to come in human form to talk with Abraham. When God had finished his conversation with Abraham, the, the story picks up again, but with the two angels that came with the Lord. We said earlier that two indicates the presence of legal witnesses. They are going to procure evidence about what's happening in the city of Sodom. Now the two angels came. Uh, Genesis 19.1, to Sodom. In the evening, Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When he saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face to the ground. It's interesting, isn't it? This is the second time in a day this has happened, first in the heat of the day, earlier at Abraham's tent. And now it happens again with Lot as the angels come into Sodom. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house, spend the night, wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, we'll spend the night in the open square. Now, this really alarmed Lot. But he insisted strongly so that they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And so... Uh, he did the same thing that Abraham did. So he showed hospitality to these angels, probably not realizing that they were angels until much later. But nonetheless, uh, this is what opened a door for him to be blessed. Listen to me, generosity is always the order of the day. And uh, you don't do things that are stupid by just uh, pulling over and picking up any hitchhiker and so forth. But uh, there are ample opportunities to show generosity in such a way that you don't have to put yourself in harm's way. Uh, the mere arrival of the angels elucidated Lot's apprehension for their safety. He knew. I can't let these guys stay outside in the street because he knew what would happen to them. And here we go to verse 4. It says, Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. This would tell me that Lot is a wealthy man. His house was not built up against the wall the way it would have been with most people. For him to have a freestanding house that could be surrounded, 360 says that he's a man of some means. And they called to Lot and they said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally or sexually. Uh, same Hebrew phrase is used when it describes Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. Uh, knowing them is talking about sexual intercourse. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brothers, do not so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish, only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. This is really a, a sad, sad story. 
that Lot would be willing to offer his own virgin daughters to this crowd of men. He knew they wouldn't take him up on it, but he did offer it. And it shows you the degree to which Lot had been influenced by this city. No doubt he thought, I can go there. It's a beautiful place to live. It's a wonderful place to make money. Uh, the economy's great there. It's green, green, green. It's like the Garden of Eden, according to Genesis chapter 13. Uh, it's what Lot chose. He had the first choice of all the land of Canaan. This is what he chose. He chose this on the basis of beauty. And I've seen people do that. I've seen people make choices to go to certain parts of the nation or parts of the world for that matter, just because of how beautiful it is. They're never thinking about the spiritual climate. And when you do that, when you make that your number one deciding factor in a choice, you're going to put your family in jeopardy. Exactly what happened to Lot. Now, uh, this is how far he compromised. Uh, his daughters were probably espoused to some men and that they were not yet uh, married to fully. That was certainly the custom of the day. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but these mobsters <laughs> surrounded the house, and they were determined to uh, go after these two angels. They wanted them badly. Uh, but the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. So they were not able to see the door. But did they, did they give up? No, they did not give up. They continued to try to find the door. They were determined. Now, Listen to what Isaiah 26.10 says. This is fascinating because people think, well, if they could just see a miracle, if they could just see God do something special or supernatural, that would cause them to change. And that's not true. Listen to what Isaiah 26.10 says. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. I mean, God is doing something. They didn't see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Now, this is telling right here, very telling. And it says something to us about the judgment of the Lord. Could it be that the person who had prayers heard by God, who cried out to God about the wickedness of the men of Sodom, could that have been Lot himself? Certainly, it sounds to me like there was no one else in that city who cared about their behavior. Everybody had grown used to it. We know from Scripture that Lot was grieved by it. So Lot was grieved by this behavior. God heard this. God sent the angels to witness it. They didn't even have to go searching. It came to them, which showed immediately that everything that had been reported was true. And so now there's a basis for judgment. But the other thing that I want you to get is this. When God does issue fire like he will do in this story, the only reason he does it is to save those that are innocent. And that's the, the key. God is saving the innocent. God doesn't want this to spread throughout the region he wants to arrest it right here and now. He doesn't want other cities to pick up this kind of behavior. So he's going to deal with it so that it will be a, an object lesson to all around. So even when this supernatural act of restraint was placed upon these men, the blindness hit them, they didn't stop. All right. So Lot went out, verse 14, and he spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters. Two schools of thought on this. It could have been that they were espoused to his daughters and had not yet consummated the marriage, or it could mean that he had other daughters that uh, had been married and uh, they were already living with these husbands. And he went to his sons-in-law and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. 
They, they couldn't take it seriously. They laughed at the idea. And they're laughing that the city could be destroyed and it could be judged, and, and that's just totally foreign to them. They can't imagine such a thing happening. Now, Sodom was judged that, that next day, and it was judged for something even more than you think. And that's why it's so important when you read a, a story in the Scriptures that you read all of what the Scriptures have to say even later because a lot of times the complete narrative or the complete uh, uh, picture is not painted in the original narrative. It is later when God adds more to it. For instance, uh, why did God offer Isaac on Mount Moriah? Well, you won't know the full story of that unless you go to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews chapter 11, you can see exactly what Abraham was up to and why he did it and why he thought Isaac was to be raised from the dead. And so here in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 48 and through 50, tell us why Sodom was judged. Listen to what it says. As I live, says the Lord God, Neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. And this is God talking to the city of Jerusalem through the prophet Ezekiel. And he said, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride. That's number one. Fullness of food. In other words, they were gluttonous. Number three, abundance of idleness. They were no longer busy. They kept getting into all kinds of mischief because they were idle. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. They had plenty of food themselves, even more than what they needed. Never thought twice about giving anything to the poor around them. They were haughty. They ridiculed the idea that anything could happen to them. And they committed abomination before me. Now the sex sin and the abomination is what we focus on, and it's what Genesis points out. But it's not the only thing. It's only one of six things. There are other cities. Uh, Corinth was a very wicked city. Sodom was a little different, and I'll explain in the last part of this lesson. But there are six different reasons that it was judged. Now, the latest archaeological discoveries reveal the likely fate of Sodom. And I love it when you see uh, an archaeologist go to the Middle East and dig, and, and, and I love it that these guys are really careful. They don't make statements just because they have a certain belief. They want to see proof both in the text and in the ground. And in this book, Discovering the City of Sodom, Dr. Stephen Collins and his uh, co-author, Dr. Latane C. Scott, have found what I believe is the best evidence yet for the ruins of the biblical Sodom. And there have been a number of cities put forth over the years as to where Sodom might be, somewhere around the Dead Sea. Some people think it's been totally wiped off the face of the earth, that there is no evidence for it. Maybe it's under the waters of the southern end of the Dead Sea, but that doesn't agree with the Scripture. When you want to really do some digging, it's important to pay attention to all the text. Tal el Hamam, and Tal means hill or ruin, it's in the Kikar, which is a Hebrew word for plain, or it's plain in English, but it really means disc. It's a circle. And if you could look on Google Earth north of the Dead Sea, there is a circle at the top of the Dead Sea, and it's all green. And it used to be even more green. And this is the Kikar. It was the green plain, or the disc of Sodom. And uh, in the northeast corner of this kikar, or this disc, there is Tal El Hammam. And it is a Middle Bronze Age site that had a peculiar ending. The ruins of this city tell the story of a sudden violent destruction, not a long siege, not a place where people starved to death. It was a sudden catastrophe so great that no man-made event short of a nuclear weapon could have caused it. That's what the archaeological record shows. The site reveals very few intact human skeletons. It's a city that was destroyed and not occupied later. And you would think that a city as big as this one is would have numbers of human skeletons, but what they have found as opposed to intact skeletons are few but mostly bone fragments from people who have been obliterated. 
the obliteration would not be unlike what was seen in the aftermath of the atomic, atomic bomb strikes in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan at the end of World War II. Sodom had massive towers with 10-foot-thick walls rising, uh, uh, rising 45 feet above the level of the city floor. They're flattened. Some of them were made out of stone, and there was another part made out of uh, mud brick. And uh, these 4,000-year-old ruins lying near the surface indicate that this city was destroyed and was not rebuilt by succeeding civilizations. You you know, you go to Jerusalem, you got layer upon layer upon layer of civilization. You've got the uh, period of Solomon and David, and then a few feet above it is the time of Christ, and above that's the Byzantine period and so forth, and you come up to modern times. And really, the level of the modern streets of Jerusalem right now are some 30, 40 feet above the streets of Jesus' day. So that's how much uh, dirt and stone has been piled in on top of it, and they just keep building and go higher and higher. So they actually fill in uh, valleys. This city or this site was covered by ash uh, 20 inches thick, dark gray ash, and uh, nothing built on top of it. Glazed pottery sherds found uh, in this area and uh, immediately caught the attention of the archaeologists because they said, why would these Muslim-era pottery shards be here? Because they were glazed, and glazing on pottery didn't occur till the the Muslim era in the Middle East, and uh, this is way too early. So we've got the archaeological dig, where it's, it's Middle Bronze Age, uh, but here there are these pottery sherds. They're glazed when they shouldn't be. And, but the pottery is glazed because of a surface melt that appeared only on one side, not both sides. And it was a couple of millimeters thick. Uh, that's not very thick. And in order for this pottery to have this melt only a couple of millimeters thick means that the heat that melted it had to be 2,000 degrees. Now, that's a couple of hundred degrees hotter than uh, what those people were able to create with furnaces to smelt copper and and, uh, iron and so forth. They they couldn't get uh, that kind of heat. Uh, It was very difficult to get that. And whatever it was that created this glaze happened very quickly because it didn't penetrate deeply into the clay. It only goes two millimeters thick, and then it doesn't do anything on the other side. It's only on the surface. So the heat that melted it had to be about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's possible that the heat in the air just above it was anywhere from 11,000 to 18, 20,000 degrees. That's extreme heat, and it can't be attained in nature. Only one way to do it, and that is with an atomic bomb. This material that they found is strikingly similar to a substance known as trinitite, and it's melted sand found beneath the first atomic bomb detonation in New Mexico. And uh, the devastation that's described in the Bible uh, about what happened to Sodom is very similar to what happened in 1908 when a meteorite uh, swung low and exploded in the sky above Tunguska, Siberia. And what it is is a cosmic airburst. And so the material from this meteor that blew up in the sky never hit the ground. There is no trace of a crater, but we've got this massive flattening of trees. And so it's just incredible. Another thing that's fascinating about this is that the location fits with the biblical narrative. Uh, Listen to Genesis 13, verse 3. Abram went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So he's in the Samaritan highlands in the middle of uh, Israel, north of Jerusalem. And they were able to see, because this is what Lot wanted. And from this place where they were, Bethel and Ai, Lot saw what he wanted. And verse 10, Genesis 13, Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the kikar, or the plain, the disk of Jordan. You can see the green belt. That it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord 
like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. So whoever wrote this was a person that was familiar with the land of Egypt. Well, we know who that was. It was Moses. He was familiar with the land of Egypt, and he described uh, Sodom's valley, the Kikar, the disk, as the greenest part of Egypt. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain, or all the Kikar, of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So Sodom was destroyed exactly the way the Scripture says it was. It's in the place that the, the Bible says it was. It's a place called Tal, uh, Tal El Hamam. And if you want to read more on that, look uh, for the book by uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Collins. It's called Discovering the Ancient City of Sodom. And uh, fascinating read. And if you love that kind of thing, I recommend it. Well, we're not done. We're going to talk about how this relates to our day, our time. What does it speak to us in our next section? So don't miss that. See you then. Welcome back. As we get into this last section of our 12th lesson, I want to remind you of what the scripture has said, and that is in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, the thing that has been is the thing that shall be, and that which shall be is that which has been. So really, uh, history is comprised of re repetitive cycles things happen again and again and again. That doesn't mean that the cycles are exactly the same all the time, but they repeat themselves. And uh, many times there is an order. And what we're seeing here in this particular lesson is there's a characteristic. In other words, as things are developing with the people of Israel who are God's clock, according to Jesus, he said, watch the fig tree. That's the clock of God. And we've seen what happened with them down through the ages we see another characteristic in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The placement of the Sodom story in the Genesis account at the same time as the development of Abraham and his people uh, reveals to us that in similar times, in the last days, there will be a sexual revolution and there will be a time when things are very much like they were in Sodom. The sexual revolution of the 1960s and its influence on uh, current events cannot be understated. It ha has had a huge, huge, huge impact. Ezekiel made it clear that Sodom's judgment came uh, not just because of the sexual revolution, but other things that accompanied it as well. And uh, it's so important that when we read about a uh, read a narrative in, say, like the Genesis account, that later on, either in the prophets or in the New Testament, there will be a corresponding uh, indicator of why some of those things happened. And here it is in Ezekiel 16. And this is over a thousand years after the destruction of Sodom. But listen to what it says in verse 48, Ezekiel 16, New King James Version. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. In other words, God said to rebellious Jerusalem, you are actually worse than Sodom when I judged it. And he said, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Uh, she and her daughter had pride. And uh, she's called daughter uh, because uh, now we see the same thing that happened in Sodom being repeated in Jerusalem. And so she and her daughter had pride. God hates pride. We underestimate that. But God hates pride, and he will deal with it. It is the original sin. It's, it's, it goes back even further than the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden because it was Lucifer who fell because of his pride. Fullness of food, meaning that this uh, city was in a place where they had great food security, and uh, as a result, they became very haughty. Uh, they, they didn't uh, feel any kind of threat, so they, they didn't look to God. A lot of people looked to God only in a time of calamity, and because there was no calamity, they didn't look to God. Uh, abundance of idleness. In other words, they did not have to work 
in order to produce a substantial amount of food, it was easy for them because of the area that they lived in. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Now, she's got all this abundance, but it never occurred to her to help those that are around them that were less fortunate. You know, that's what got the rich man in trouble. Uh, who uh, ignored Lazarus. Lazarus was a beggar who was laid at his gate daily, full of sores, and he wanted just a, some scraps, table scraps. He wanted to be fed from leftovers, from the rich man's food, and where he fared sumptuously every day. And the rich man eventually died and was carried into hell. Lazarus died and was carried into Abraham's bosom, uh, the paradise that existed then before Christ came, that was in the heart of the earth. And uh, so we see then that uh, God takes a dim view of people who have plenty yet refuse to share with those who don't. We need to be mindful of that. We don't need to have guilt about it. You don't feel, need to feel guilty about the blessing of God on your life. There's no shame in that at all. But at the same time, when we're blessed, we look for opportunities to be generous. They didn't do that. They were haughty. And so that was the next thing that happened. They, 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 there's a difference between pride and haughtiness. Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs says, and a haughty spirit before fall. That's Hebrew poetry. And when Hebrew poetry is used, it states two things in, in close proximity, but they're not exactly the same. They're, they're slightly different. Haughtiness is a outwardly manifest attitude. Pride is a deep inward flaw where haughtiness is the outward manifestation of that. It's what comes to the outside. It's what you say. It's in the look uh, that you have. It's in the uh, words that you speak. And that's what happened. God separates those two and said, not only were you full of pride, but you were also haughty. You really let it out. And uh, they committed abomination, that's the sexual sin, before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Now, that's what God said. Now, uh, as we look back on the story and the narrative in Genesis, uh, we would focus only on that sixth thing, the, the sexual abomination. But there were a number of other things that went with it, and they always do. Uh, sexual abomination and sexual revolution never happen without the presence of these other things. They all come together. Pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness, time of great prosperity. In other words, we didn't see a great sexual revolution in America during the Great Depression. Uh, there was a time there where people were, were humble and were looking to God. They were desperate. But when we begin to prosper after World War II and uh, we entered into a time of prosperity in our nation, the Western uh, societies all did, and uh, begin to recover from the effects of World War II, that's when the sexual abomination began to happen. Now, the beginning of the sexual revolution uh, came about first with seduction. That is, people who didn't have these restraints began to try to entice others and, and uh, put things in front of other people. You see the, the uh, advent of pornography, mass production of pornography, both in print medium and in film. And you see that in the sexual revolution. It affected people. You could see it among young people with the free love movement and so forth. And it had a great uh, impact on society, a devastating impact on people health-wise. Uh, numbers of people uh, came up with sexually transmitted diseases. Many died prematurely uh, because of what happened with them. Uh, and, and here's the myth, too, and this is a myth. All the studies show, and they do, it doesn't matter what study it is, they, they do these studies every so many years, and they all conclude the same thing, that the happiest people sexually are the heterosexual couples who are monogamous, who are faithful to each other. They report the highest sexual satisfaction of all in the surveys. The swingers, the homosexuals, none of them register the sexual satisfaction that the monogamous couples do. It just doesn't happen, and that happens year in, year out. All right? Uh, now, Sodom's sexual sins moved beyond seduction to the point that they could be characterized by another word. And I would say that word is compulsion. In other words, uh, in the beginning, the sexual revolution was, uh, hey, look at this. 
but it turned into, hey, you're going to do this. And so now they're compelling people who are even unwilling to participate in their sexual sins. And that's what you see uh, with what happened with the angels who visited Sodom to rescue Lot. Uh, They were going to compel those angels to have sexual relations with the population. And uh, that's the difference. It, it really changed. And that's where they digressed. I say progress, but it's not progressed. It's digressed. They digressed into a terrible state here. Now, listen to what it says. Genesis 19, 4 and 5. Now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young. Here's another thing. The sexual compulsion moves from the older people. And, and listen, pornography couldn't exist without the investment of wealthy older people. Wealthy older people are always at the root of the corruption of the younger generation. They're the ones who make it all go. They're the engine that drive it. They may not be on the covers of the magazines. They may not be the ones that we look at or associate sexual promiscuity with, but they're the ones who make it happen. We're talking about the older people with the money who are funding all of these things, pushing all these things. They're always at the root of this. All right. Men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, All the people from every quarter surrounded the house, and so we see this moves into the sexualization of children. Now, years ago, uh, there were people who warned that the sexual revolution was going to eventually come for your children, and it now has, and it's amazing to me how we see people pushing pedophilia today in our culture like never before. And uh, it's just remarkable. But it is the end of the march uh, of degradation morally. It's inevitable. It always goes down this track. This has happened before. And so we are now seeing this again. And they called out to Lot and they said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them carnally. Now, when a culture falls to this level of debauchery, uh, we see that we are living in the days of Lot. Listen to what Luke 17, 28 says. So too, what happened in the time of Lot will be repeated. This is Jesus talking. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Now, that's interesting. He goes back to what Ezekiel says, that they had plenty of food. They didn't care about the poor. They weren't concerned about the lower class and hunger in the lower class. They weren't concerned about that. They were obsessed with gratifying their desires, not just in terms of sexual activity, but also with food. These people had no care for the people around them. Luke 17, 29 and 30. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all, even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now the scripture says here that judgment will come upon that generation and it will catch them completely off guard. There will not be a warning to call people uh, to repent and so forth that gets the most wicked. They will be caught off guard completely. It will be completely normal one day and the next day, boom, Boom, it all hits, and that's exactly what it, uh, we see right now. And that's what emboldens people because things are completely normal and things do go really well. I mean, uh, to those of us who love God and have a moral standard, we see a decay. We're troubled by that. But uh, the people that don't have those kinds of values, they don't see anything at all. They will be completely uh, caught off guard. Matthew 24, 44, 26 translation says this, and this is Jesus again, where continue to be ready. It is just when you are least expecting him that the Son of Man will come. And the reason is people will give up. Uh, We think about the Lord coming when some major event happens, when there's a major threat, but it will be such that it'll catch everybody off guard to a certain extent. Even the righteous uh, we'll, we'll be at a time where they say, wow, I didn't think it, I knew it was happening, but I didn't think it happened today. That's uh, what it'll be. Now, We have to learn then to live watchfully. And there's a difference between being watchful 
and being full of paralysis. Uh, you can't be paralysis, uh, paralyzed. Uh, this is important. You can be so taken up with prophetic things that that's all you think about, and it creates a paralysis in your real impact on the world. You don't want to fall into what I call prophecy paralysis, which means that you really are so caught up with what you think is coming that you don't do anything to be fruitful. All right, let's read 2 Peter 2, 6-9. through If he reduced to ashes the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and condemned them to overthrow, making them an object lesson for godless men in future days. And if he rescued righteous Lot, who was so distressed or vexed by the immoral conduct of the lawless, for by what that righteous man saw and heard as he lived among them, he was vexed in his righteous soul day after day with their lawless deeds. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment unto the day of judgment. Now this is what I want you to see. Although we live in this, we do not let it stop us. But while we go on in our walk with God, it's not uncommon for us to be vexed. To be vexed, and actually there are two different words used here, translated vexed in the English uh, two times. It is the, the Greek word katapon uh, eo, uh, which, man, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering that, but I'm doing the best I can here. To wear with toil, and it's just the steady, ongoing assault of the negative news, the negative reports, the evil behaviors that just keep building. And that's what it means, to wear somebody down. And then there's basanidso, and it means pain, toil, torment, toss, vex. This is the kind of thing that goes deep into the soul. This is not just the fatigue uh, that happens spiritually, but this is a cut. And uh, this is something that really shocks you, that grieves you when you see and hear these things. It disturbs you. And if you're a righteous person, you ought to have that. Now, this is what I see today. I see a lot of so-called Christian leaders who have no problem with what's going on in the culture. In fact, they embrace it. They have this notion that if you're doing things right, that somehow you can fit in and have great influence and and we do have influence, but there needs to be a line of separation. Separation at least in the way we believe and think. I'm not talking about pulling away from people saying, I'm too good for you. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that when we live righteously and we have values, the people that are wicked like this don't want to be around us. And what I see is some desperately wicked people who don't have any trouble being around so-called Christian leaders because those Christian leaders do not have any real moral bite to them. And anyone who walks with God, anyone who has that deep relationship with Christ will have a light in them and salt in them that will bring conviction to those people around who are so desperately wicked. And I want to say this, that the Christian leaders who become lukewarm and fall into this don't even realize they're doing it. Uh, they, they, they just don't even see it coming. And I, I want to read to you a narrative. This, this ought to speak to your heart. This is the story of Samson. And this is the last of Samson's power until he was brought out to be mocked by the Philistines. This is in Judges chapter 16. Uh, then she, Delilah, lulled him to sleep on her knees. That's what happens with people. They get lulled to sleep. They get a little bit of favor with ungodly people, and they take it, and they keep going and going and going until they become comfortable with everything that happens there. And she called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. So apparently Samson had uh, seven big ponytails on the top of his head, and, and uh, they, they were cut off. And she began to torment him, and his strength left him. So she begins to test to see, did he lose his strength? And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep. And then notice the attitude. Uh, the posture of Samson here. He's sleeping. And this is what Paul warns about in 1 Thessalonians 5. He warns believers, not the sinners. He warns people in the church, don't go to sleep. And the reason they fall into sleep is because of their drunkenness 
and their revelings, and they have become part of the party spirit of the age. And he said, the Philistines are, or she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But listen to this. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Wow. There are people today that are just like this. They don't realize that they've lost the power of God. They mistake the favor of the world for the power of God. They think because they're accepted by a lot of people that they have the power of God. The power of God is not indicated by how much the world loves you. That's not an indicator. The power of God is not indicated by how many people subscribe to your ministry, how many people watch you on TV, how big a church you build. It really isn't an indicator of the power of God. The power of God is most manifested by how you live in victory in a world around you that is wicked and how that victory rubs off on your own family. And so this is so very, very important. It's important that we do not fall asleep. And that's what happened in Lot's day. Well, that's all the time that we have for Lesson 12. But we will go into the last of these sequences found in Genesis in the early chapters that give us a picture of the last days. We'll pick that up next week. I'll see you then. I want to thank you for watching our podcast today. And if you really liked it, would you please give us a little thumbs up by clicking on that sign down below? And then I would encourage you to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any of our future podcasts because they're all going to be good. And if you would like to support us financially, either with a one-time gift or recurring gift, you can do that by clicking on the link below are going to MyFaithRoots.com. Thank you so much for watching this program. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today.